What should we be looking for during spring training? We'll ask Todd Zola, our regular Talk with Todd guest, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Here's a pitch on the way, a swing and a belt. Left field, way back. Blue Jays win it. The Blue Jays are World Series champions as Joe Carter hits a three-run home run in the ninth inning in the Blue Jays. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, February 27th. It's show number five of the 2015 fantasy baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Friday show for you. In just a few minutes, we'll talk with Todd Zola, our regular Talk with Todd guest, about what he's looking for during spring training. We'll also have our regular contributors from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. We'll have player news from both the National and American Leagues with Harold Nichols as Jock Thompson is traveling. We'll also have our HQ Radio commentaries. In the Minor League Minute, analyst Rob Gordon reports on three top prospects in the Blue Jays organization. And in Master Notes, BaseballHQ.com researcher and writer Bob Berger talks about what he learned from Virtual Fred. It's another big Friday show. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? What should we be looking for during spring training? We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday News and Notes edition, it's our League Watch News reports. As I mentioned, Jock Thompson is traveling, so we'll have Harold Nichols with players from the American League and leading off with players from the National League, here he is, our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. Always good to be here and getting excited as, as the season goes closer. It is an exciting time getting ready for our drafts. Uh, BaseballHQ.com, we're adding something like 30 articles a week for draft preparation, including facts and flukes. This is an interesting column that looks at seemingly uh, out-of-the-ordinary player performances, and then we ask, is this a fact? That means has the player established a new baseline, either higher or lower than in the past, or is it a fluke, an outlier that uh, we should ignore and expect the player to revert to a more regular form? Greg Pyron's February 26th Fact and Flukes column looked at Arizona closer Addison Reed, among others. Very reliable closer, Nick, but the question is, do we have things to worry about here? Well, you know, the problem with Addison Reed that everyone looks at and, and worries about, I think, with Addison Reed is his ERA has been up. I mean, in 2012, 4.75, 3.79, and 2013, 4.25, in 2014. So you wonder, is this a guy who's got maybe a kind of a shaky hold on the closer role uh, with uh, with those kind of ERAs? And uh, Addison Reed actually last year, in spite of that, that 4.25 ERA, pitched extremely well. His, uh, his, his BPV was as high as it's been since he broke in in 2011. Uh, all of his indicators were, were well up. Uh, excellent Dom rate, striking out 10.5 guys per nine innings, uh, only walking 2.3. So Addison Reed was pitching very, very well. He simply had a, a kind of a high home run per fly index, a bit of a high hit rate, and those things took a toll on the ERA. But XERA was 3.51. Addison Reed looks like a guy who could do extremely well 
uh, this this season, and you might be able to get him at a discount for a closer because of that that somewhat high ERA. And it's interesting, Nick, the combination of higher hit rate and a higher home run per fly ball rate is really a perfect storm of a fantasy killer. The pitcher's giving up more hits because of bad luck, which raises his whip, and at the same time, he's giving up more home runs because of bad luck, and at the same time as that, more of those home runs come with runners aboard, which hurts his ERA. So... If the luck-related metrics straighten out, as we expect, Addison Reed could bounce back to a much more normal year, a much more normal ERA, and maybe, like you said, he could be available at a discount. Yeah, the caveat in all of this, of course, is he's pitching in Arizona, and so he's a fly ball pitcher in a, uh, in a, diff- in a, 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 in a tough park for a pitcher, uh, and in that park, there are going to be some balls hit out, so home run per fly may stay higher than you want it to, uh, it may all- so... There is that caveat, but but you've got a really fine pitcher here who's probably being discounted more than he should be because of some bad luck last season. For many years at Nick, Stephen Nickrand of BaseballHQ.com has been doing some fantastic work as the starting pitcher's buyer's guide columnist, and in his most recent column at BaseballHQ.com, Stephen covers Lima targets, which is potentially undervalued pitchers that we should be looking at based on their skills. And one of the National League pitchers he identified in the column was the Dodgers' Brandon McCarthy. In fact, Brandon McCarthy is one of the few guys who had a, we got that, that got from Baseball HQ a Grade A Lima pick uh, as a, as a pitcher. Um, but but last year a an ERA that was above four. So again, we have some bad luck into play. A thirty four percent hit rate caused that that ERA to be up. That hit rate was the highest of his career. Uh, an excellent fifty three percent ground ball rate. Uh, excellent command last season. Uh, this guy has the goods. He's a good pitcher. The biggest question mark is durability. He's he's uh, never put back-to-back seasons of 120 innings pitched together. Uh, he tends to get tends to get hurt. So you want to discount that at the draft table. Figure you may you're not going to get 200 innings out of him. But still, uh, a premium target if you can get him at a discounted rate could easily put up a $15 season or more if he stays healthy. Well, staying healthy will be a big if for Brandon McCarthy. We know that. But boy, you sure have to like that combination of a ground ball rate over 50% plus 7.5 strikeouts per 9 because that means a lot of unproductive outs. Uh, Stephen Nickrand also is covering batters this year for BaseballHQ.com. And in his Lima Targets column, one National League pick was Chris with a K Davis of the Milwaukee Brewers. Yeah, Chris Davis started out like a house of fire last season. I hit 14 home runs in the first half and then started to to wear down. But his skills were actually at their best in August, a uh, 10% walk rate, an 84% contact rate. Uh, contact rate last year rose from 74% in the first half to 78% in the second half. Uh, a 150 uh, expected power index in four of the six months last year. All of those skills look, look outstanding as we look ahead to this season. And we, we've got a guy that at, we're projecting at 500 at bats, 26 home runs, 253 batting average. Uh, he's a guy who actually has the skills, I think, to top 30 home runs. Uh, and uh, uh, keep that batting average. He's never going to be a great in terms of batting average, but uh, probably around 250, uh, 244 last season. Uh, hopefully you would not see too big a drop in that. So if you think about a 250-ish batting average and 30 home runs, a guy who could, uh, and probably a guy who can get for uh, for clearly under 15 bucks since he's never earned that much, uh, could be a, an excellent Lima target. 
I like the skills combination of Chris Davis as well, Nick, and there might be some batting average upside. In 2013, he had a 279 batting average. That was just in 136 at-bats, so there is some worry since last year he had more than 500 at-bats and his batting average was well under that level. And that has a bit of a cascading effect, a low batting average as far as the RBIs are concerned. Fewer hits means fewer RBIs, so that's something else to consider. That's true. And on the plus side, however, his, his XBA last year expected batting average was 278. So I think there's, a, there's certainly a possibility that uh, his, his batting average could go up a little bit this year. And if he had 30 home runs at 278, you'd be delighted with him. I would be delighted if Chris Davis hits around 280. I think we could expect him to be mid-90s in RBI and maybe even threaten 100. The question with Davis, I think, still, Nick, might be hit rate under 30% last year. And it's hard to say that we should expect regression. He only has about 600 at-bats in the big leagues, so we don't really know what his individual hit rate should be yet. But if we expect, just for now, a regression to the 30% level, he does have a couple of points of growth available there, which adds to his intrigue, I think, as a target for 2015. And finally, Nick, Ray Murphy's speculator column looks at value targets in spring training. These are players who are not on a lot of radar screens, except maybe as faint blips at this time, but they could be able to earn useful playing time this season if they perform well during spring. And the name that really jumped out at me, Nick, was Eric Young, late of the New York Mets, and now in what looks like it might be a really good situation in Atlanta. Eric Young Jr. is now down in Atlanta and uh, signed a, uh, a, a, a non-roster invite contract. Uh, you know, the, the thing we know about Eric Young Jr. is that he can steal bases. If he gets at bats, he is going to steal some bags. I mean, last year, in 288 bats, you've got 30 stolen bases. Uh, that's nothing to sneeze at because he'd probably pick him up for a, for a song. Uh, BA might might hurt you a bit. 229 last year, which was in fact uh, the worst his worst BA of his major league career. But the thing to to look at with Eric Young as spring training progresses is does he make the Braves roster? Uh, and if he does, uh, he's going to force himself into some playing time. Here's a guy who can play uh, who can play some at second base as well as in the outfield. Uh, the the second base situation in Atlanta is unsettled. Uh, the outfield situation is a little bit unsettled. It, it looks as though Atlanta is going to have a team this year that's going to need to manufacture some runs. And here's a guy that can certainly manufacture runs, assuming he can get on base. So uh, you've got a guy in Eric Young who doesn't have a roster spot right now, but certainly could gain some value in spring training and is worth, is worth watching as, the, uh, as spring training progresses. It is an interesting second base situation, Nick. They're waiting, of course, for super prospect Jose Peraza. Rob Gordon covered Peraza recently at Baseball HQ Radio in the Minor League Minute, and Peraza might make the club out of spring training. But if he doesn't, all that seems to be standing between Eric Young and some regular playing time at second is Alberto Cayaspo. And he's, you know, he's an okay player, but he's not going to make anybody forget Rogers Hornsby or Jackie Robinson or Joe Morgan or Robbie Alomar. Or Robinson Cano, and I'm just trying to cover all my baseball eras with this. Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) And in the outfield, you have uh, B.J. Upton, who's certainly had his struggles, and a a cast of some other guys. Uh, Markakis looks like he's going to be locked into an outfield spot, but there do seem to be a fair number of ways for Eric Young to find his way into some playing time. He does indeed. I mean, he's probably in, as as, uh, Ray mentioned, he probably is in the best situation he could be in in terms of potential playing time signing that kind of a that uh, NRI contract with Atlanta because there are paths there in areas where he can contribute. Uh, so I wouldn't be at all surprised to see him on the roster, uh, nor at all surprised to see him starting at various points during during the season. 
We didn't mention the possible batting average threat that Eric Young might pose, something that people are going to be concerned about after he hit a little under 230 last season. But historically, his batting average has been more like in the mid-240s and pretty consistent. Still not great, but a little more acceptable in today's hitting environment. Yeah, I think so. But XBA for the last three seasons, expected batting average 258, 260, 261. That's pretty consistent. So uh, I I certainly think that uh, he could get up easily get up around 250. Uh, and you wouldn't have to worry so much about him going into the tank as he did last season. Okay, Nick, thanks very much for looking at the uh, National League for us. And because Jock Thompson is traveling, let's just keep you here and move on to the American League. All right, sounds good. Let's do it. Nick, Ryan Bloomfield's Facts and Flukes column this week looked at a number of American League players. And the one I want to talk about is Seattle starting pitcher Hisashi Iwakuma. He had great results a couple of years ago out of left field. Very good results again last year. But the question is, can he keep it up? Yeah, you know, and and the and he, he slipped a little bit last year. His ERA went from two six six in two thousand thirteen to three point five two last season. And you know, I, I'll tell you something. I love Hisashi Iwakuma. Here's a guy that you can get for a non ace price, who is is a real, really an ace pitcher. Uh, and it's interesting. I own him in several leagues, and very seldom do guys ask to trade for him. But I wouldn't give him up. The thing about Iwakuma. If you go back to uh, 2013 to 2.66 ERA, 3.29 expected earned run average, 117 BPV, outstanding skills. Last year that ERA rose and he didn't look quite so um, quite so dominant. Uh, but the problem wasn't his skills. Skills actually went up. A 139 BPV last season. Uh, the the problem was a little rise in hit rate, a drop in strand rate, uh, and those things caused the the rising ERA. So. Here's a guy that you can probably get cheaply. Uh, he doesn't stand out as an ace because he's the number two guy on that on that Seattle staff, uh, which kind of hides him uh, further into the background. But we're projecting a 3.21 ERA. Um, it actually, I think, could go lower than that. He's proven he can do better than that in two of his, his three major league seasons. Uh, and skills were actually getting better. So uh, a, a good guy to take a look at that you can probably get at a slightly discounted price uh, who can bring uh, ace-level skills to your to your roster. Nick, when I look at Iwakuma, I find it interesting to compare his ERA to his expected ERA these last couple of years. You mentioned a couple of years ago that 2.66 ERA was half a run under his expected ERA. Then last year, his ERA goes up to 350, but that's half a run over his expected ERA, which actually went down. So there's variation there. And the question is, does the owner be cautious about that variation or optimistic about it? It's one of those things that, that we don't have a huge track record in order to know. Uh, he did miss all of last April with a finger injury, and that certainly cut into his innings. Uh, so he didn't have the, have the the 200 innings that he had in 2013. Uh, but that's, again, not something that, that we, we, we we don't look at Iwakuma, I think, as a health risk. Uh, that was simply a finger injury, and he'll be back to, uh, was back to normal before the end of last season, so... That might provide a little bit of a discount, people who remember an injury of any kind. Also, uh, Hisashi Iwakuma is 33 years old, which a lot of people think is a little long in the tooth and might provide even a further discount, making Hisashi Iwakuma a little more of a buying opportunity, perhaps. Uh, We mentioned Stephen Nickran's columns about Lima targets. Uh, We already discussed some names from the National League, so let's look at the American League. And another Seattle starting pitcher caught Stephen's eye. He likes James Paxton as a Lima target. Yeah, I love James Paxton. I mean, here's a guy that uh, that that last year, when he was in the rotation, 13 starts, uh, 3.04 ERA, uh, pitched pitched outstanding. Um, 
and and he's got all he's got all the goods. I mean, we're looking at a 26 year old here, 26 uh, year old left hander who's got three pitches, three strikeout pitches, a fastball that can get into the mid 90s, a uh, ground ball lean, uh, everything about him that you like. The problem is uh, is he's he's been injured, uh, shoulder injury. So the question is is that shoulder going to be sound? But here's a guy that could easily produce an ERA under 350 uh, if he's uh, if he's healthy and. Uh, we'll see how many innings he can get, but a, a very intriguing, I think, young young pitcher. He is, and we talked earlier about Brandon McCarthy during the National League segment and his very large combined ground ball and strikeout rates. Paxton looks like a pitcher in that same mold. Now, he's only had limited innings, uh, barely 100 innings in the big leagues, to be fair, but in that time, his ground ball rate has been well over 50%. He's been striking out about 7.5 batters per inning. That's a lot of strikeouts, and again, it's a huge number of batters when you combine the two, whose ability to produce offensively is being very well restricted by James Paxton. Yeah, very definitely. I mean, a huge ground ball rate, as you say, a, a large strikeout rate, and uh, and a guy that should be well discounted, I think, at the draft table because uh, he he's not he's not exactly a young guy anymore at age twenty six. So some of that maybe prospect tag is is wearing off, uh, but I think he's ready for a breakout if he stays healthy. And at age 26, he's coming more into full physical maturity. That could help him stay on the field. Uh, Steven Nickrand, as I said earlier, also looked at Lima targets for hitters. And one of the names of American League hitters on his list was Kansas City third baseman Mike Moustakis. Yeah, an interesting target. I mean, we, you know, Mike Moustakis is a guy who certainly disappointed a lot of people over the first uh, his first uh, four years in the major leagues. I mean, we thought he was going to be a great a great breakout target, outstanding power, hit 20 home runs in 2012, uh, and then the past three years has been worth uh, about two, uh, $2 or a buck uh, because of uh, not as much power and a very poor batting average. So, um, excuse me a second. <coughs> so why would we look at him at all as a, uh, as a potential Lima target? What, um, what the, the forecaster pointed out and what, what Stephen pointed out is that in spite of uh, a low batting average a year ago, he had career high marks in walk rate and hard hit contact rate and expected PX. Uh, his hit rate was 22%, and that, that really hid everything. So here's a guy that if you can get very cheaply and stash him on your bench, uh, is, is a potential breakout target. Uh, he's not a guy I would want in my everyday lineup. I think there are too many questions. Uh, he scares me a bit, but uh, there is there could be a breakout looming, uh, he's shown in spurts that he can be very, very good. It isn't the short spurts where he's very, very good that worry me. It's the long stretches of very, very bad. Yeah, I think it's going to be interesting this year to watch in leagues how Mike Mustakis fares as far as his auction price, his bid level, or his uh, draft here in straight draft leagues. I'm curious to see what people really think of him. You mentioned he's had signs of a breakout. I like that he has the hard contact index that went over 100 last year for the first time. Always had the good contact rate in the mid-80%. All kinds of things pointing year after year to Mike Mustak as being better than he is, but he never is. I think I'm going to be in on the bidding to start on Mike Mustakis, Nick, and I'll take him, but the discount is going to have to be pretty steep or I'm out because I just don't trust this guy. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, he's not a guy I can trust, but you go back and look at last season. Uh, his first half was absolutely awful, a one point, a 184 batting average, eight home runs, uh, but that, that, that sub-Mendoza batting average over 200 to 250 at-bats, that would kill you. Uh, second half was much better, 236, seven home runs, uh, Everything went up in the second half. His, his hard hit contact rate was up. 
his uh, his uh, his hit rate was up. The hit rate was awful in the first half, eighteen percent. So that's what killed that batting average. So eighty uh, percent contact rate. He ought to be hitting better than one eighty four. And so you know, I, I think there's potential there. But again, I would not I would not want him as my only third baseman. No, I think he's one of these situations where somebody sometime is going to roster Mike Moustakas in a fantasy league and is going to make a huge profit. But in the meantime, there's a real good chance that anyone chasing that big year is going to come back disappointed. And in fact, I think there's a good chance the big year is never going to happen. I see signs of trouble in Mike Moustakas' hit rate. Uh, look at the last few years, 30% in 2011, then 28%, down to 26%, down to 22% last year. And I wonder if that's the result of defensive shifting being us- unusually effective against Mike Moustakas because he's a left-handed power hitter. If the defensive shifting is a cause of his declining hit rate, no matter what the new commissioner might think, defensive shifting isn't going to go away. And that means that Mike Moustakas' hit rate won't be going up anytime soon either. Yeah, it may indeed. I mean, we've got a left-handed hitter here, and, and we, we know that uh, there have been more and more shifts put on against left-handers, and, and some are have, people are having real trouble adjusting, and that could be the case with Moustakas. Finally, Nick, uh, another very valuable column at BaseballHQ.com for draft preparation is the Market Watch column. Matt Cederholm looks at ADPs, looks at NFBC results from auctions and drafts, all kinds of market sources because he wants to see how the fantasy market is valuing particular players and then use that information to identify players who might be available at potentially deep discounts as well as players who might be overvalued, so you might want to steer clear of them. In this week's column, Matt looks at the outfield situation, and there's a name right down near the bottom that caught me by surprise because I'm just not used to seeing Tory Hunter's name near the bottom of any kind of a fantasy baseball list. Well, that, that's true. You know, I'm, I'm getting ready to do my annual uh, my annual piece for uh, for Sports Weekly on neglected uh, neglected veterans, and and Tory Hunter I think falls into that category. Well, whether he'll make the final piece or not, I don't know. But we get to the point where we don't expect veterans to, to continue to do well as, as they age. And he is 39 years old. And I guess you could say, well, you know, got to worry about him at age 39. But but you look at Torrey Hunter's last few seasons and you don't see anything to worry about. Here's a guy that has been absolutely consistent. Rotisserie dollars earned over the past five seasons, 24, 21, 16, 25, 24, 22. Here's a guy who's, who you got to say this is a $20 outfielder, and yet you can get him at a, at a really discounted price. Skills are outstanding. Uh, 84% contact rate last year, one of the highest of his career. Um, still getting a, a a good, a nice hard hard hit contact index. You have to go. You have to go back, back to 2005 to get a hard hit contact rate below 100, and then that year it was 99. So here's a guy who has established skills and shows up year after year putting them into play and is dropping way down on the draft list. I, I like Torrey Hunter, uh, certainly someone I would pick up as my uh, as my number three or number four outfielder very, very easily and probably at a discount. Yes, that's right. Matt Cederholm says Torrey Hunter is number 99 on the Baseball HQ projections for hitter value, but drafts are putting his average draft position way down in the 300s. That's a 200-pick differential, depending on your league setup, 12 to 16 rounds of difference. That means you might be able to wait until the 19th round, the 20th round, maybe the 21st round, and snag Torrey Hunter, who is, by our projections, around a 10th round value. Or... In an auction situation, you could grab Hunter in the end game, pay a buck or two, and at that price, 
he just seems almost certain to return a profit. Yeah, very, very definitely. The thing to remember about a guy, you know, we, we look at guys as they age sometimes and say he's got to drop off sometime, but he didn't get to have a major league career as long as he's had without proving that he can adjust every season to what the pitchers are throwing to him. This is a guy who's learned how to play the game, uh, and that counts for a lot. It does, and it should count for a lot. And I know, Nick, a lot of people are going to look at Torrey Hunter, and they're going to say, hey, he's 39 years old, there's a huge injury risk there, no thank you. But then when I look at Matt Cedarholm's market watch list of outfielders, there's only one name below Torrey Hunter, and it's young outfielder Michael Saunders. So, you know, youth is no guarantee against injury, that's for sure. Right. All right, Nick, thanks very much for helping us out again this week with the National League and the American League, and we'll talk to you again in a week's time. All right, thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols writes pitcher matchup reports for BaseballHQ.com, and he's our man on the National League beat, and this week on the American League beat as well at Baseball HQ Radio. When we come back, our regular weekly talk with Todd, it's Todd Zola coming up. Stay with us. It's Baseball HQ Radio. This is Ray Murphy, co-general manager of BaseballHQ.com, inviting you to go back to the future with us. 2015 is the 30th anniversary of the original Back to the Future movie, and this year is also the future destination that Michael J. Fox and Christopher Lloyd traveled to in that movie. Back to the Future is the theme of our 2015 First Pitch Forums program. No, we won't have a DeLorean at the events, but we will do some time traveling into the future ourselves as we preview the 2015 baseball season. Join us for these entertaining three-plus-hour seminars and jumpstart your draft prep. In the coming weeks, we will be coming to Chicago, Cincinnati, the Washington, D.C., Baltimore area, the New York, New Jersey area, Boston, Los Angeles, and San Francisco. Admission is just $39 in advance, 54 in Cincinnati, and you can get the dates and details at BaseballHQ.com. Just look for the First Pitch Forums box on the right side of the homepage. We'll see you there. First pitch forums start this weekend in Chicago on Saturday and Cincinnati on Sunday. You worried about getting fined for the He's going out to get fined. <laughs> I shouldn't get fined a dog not penny. He screws something up, but I get fined for it. He makes a bad call. All I'm doing is telling him in the dugout the ball's high. He's got rabbit ears and looks over at me, and then he throws me out of the game. Then he tells me I want showtime. Who should get fined? Why don't umpires get fined? I get fined. I can't throw him out. That's what bothers me about the game. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. You want to keep your eyes open this week at BaseballHQ.com for these features. Doug Dennis has a bullpens column about non-roster invitees and a rotisserie column revisiting the Labadini plan. Can you win with a $9 pitching staff? You should read Doug Dennis to find out. Ron Chandler's Fanalytics column has a critical analysis of the first-round player pool. Ron does this every year, and it's always an interesting read. And Matt Beagle has the 2015 ratings for Stratomatic, so if you play Strat, you need to get into that. Plus, we have all our regular features. We're going to have facts and flukes and playing time today and tomorrow, as well as all the regular features we have at BaseballHQ.com to get you ready for draft. Now it's time for our regular talk with Todd, and it's a pleasure to be joined by Todd Zola, contributor to BaseballHQ.com, Chandler Park, ESPN, Fantasy Alarm, the mothership is MastersBall.com, and others. Todd, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Really great to be back, Patrick. And you're in Chicago, the Windy City, for First Pitch Forums. Yes, I uh, got in a day early. I've got my work to do, so I found if... uh 
get up a little early on Friday morning, get the early flight, and it's like I have a regular work day. So uh, that means tomorrow I'm free to talk with anybody who wants to talk. I won't have in the back of my mind that I get to run and, and do this or do that. So the, the entire weekend will be free because I'm in Chicago a day early. And the theme for this year is Back to the Future. Do you know what you're going to be talking about specifically? Well, I know. Actually, my part's the easiest part because I've been doing this so long that I, uh, I'm the I'm the the leadoff hitter. I get to do a presentation on an overview of the player pool in general because I've been doing so many drafts and projections. So I've I've got a pretty good idea of not just you know how I feel about the players, but how everybody feels about the players, and I can incorporate that into my talk. So it's sort of become tradition that I lead off the festivities well after after the introductions, which are always entertaining unto themselves. But what's fun is. I haven't been in Chicago for several years, and they've had other people, other people having to read my notes, which uh, anybody who's done this sort of thing is kind of difficult. So uh, the Chicago folk in Cincinnati tomorrow or Sunday, they get you know, right from the horse's mouth, so to speak. Cincinnati, as you mentioned, on Sunday, March first, and then uh, you're also doing the Northeast Run, uh, uh, Washington D.C., Baltimore area on March sixth. Then the uh, New York area, New Jersey, March seventh, and Boston, your hometown, on March eighth. Right, that's uh, that's one of my favorite weekends of the year. I I like it so much that I I give up a chance to be in uh, in the labor leagues. I, well, I do the mixed labor, but I, I I give up a chance to to go and hang out in Arizona with all the guys doing uh doing labor. That's how much I enjoy doing the first pitch tour. So uh, they'll get by without me in Arizona. They could heck, they could get by without me on the East Coast if I did go to Arizona. But I just it's just such a fun fun drive, fun week to uh to see because we get to do three. And, you know, I'm an East Coast guy. There's an energy in the East Coast uh, that I kind of kind of dig, and it's just kind of fun. And what about the West Coast swing on the 14th and 15th? Uh, L.A. and San Francisco, are you in for that? I am in for that. Uh, that's just, I got to get the heck out of the East Coast. So, you know, it's a little bit warmer out there. Um, it is. I usually tie those with a, with, a, with a trip to Arizona or a trip to Vegas for the NFBC, but timing this year, with the later season is such that that's not going to work out. But there's a, a whole contingent of people that are in the industry that I hardly ever see. So this gives me an extra, an extra time to do it. This is as much vacation as it is, you know, working, you know, if, 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 if getting up in front of a hundred people and, and talking about the second base pool is working to begin with, uh, then, then, then it's, I got a pretty good job, but I enjoy, you know, catching up with some people and, and one of the guys I, I work with on the NFPC as my co-manager is out there. So we get a chance to sit down and talk a little bit. So, uh, it, there's, uh, more than, it's, uh, several reasons for going out. Some business, some pleasure, but it's all good. One of the sites you write for regularly, Todd, is fantasyalarm.com. And uh, on Tuesday, you started looking at spring training uh, questions, specifically mostly about job position battles and so forth. And then uh, just on Friday, you launched your National League version. And uh, before we talk about those columns in specific terms, first just tell us when you're looking at spring training and you've been doing it a long time, what is it that you're looking for? Well, I can tell you the first thing I'm not looking for are the statistics. I mean, I'll look in the box score, but I don't really care what, you know, who's hitting what and, and that sort of thing. Uh, there is a study out there that shows if you're, if your slugging percentage is 200 points greater than your average, then you're probably in line for a good year. And maybe that's true, but I want to see health. I want to see position battles. I want to see usage with respect to spots in the batting order. 
because uh, uh, the game we play is becoming increasingly more important if someone's going to be hitting second or hitting seventh. There's some platoon battles out there. There's a lot of people I think we'll hit on in a couple of minutes that are changing positions that, you know, have a sort of domino effect on the rest of their team. Guys coming off injuries, uh, curious to see how they look. Again, not so much the numbers, but as is, a, is, is how does Garrett Richards look throwing, you know, Tanaka, all those sorts of guys that are coming off of injuries. Uh, so, again, the last thing I look for is the box score, you know, how many home runs, how many stolen, stolen bases they get. I care more about where they are in the box score. And even something like when they have a split squad game, who are they sending with the A team and who are they sending with the B team? And, you know, sometimes it's guesswork, but when you're looking for an edge, sometimes if you can sort of figure out based upon that who the starter, who the edge, who might have the edge in a position battle. Um, so in all this information now is, is out there, uh, Twitter and, and some other factors like, you know, avenues like that which makes the information fairly easy to get as compared to previous seasons. And you say you don't pay a lot of attention to the games themselves. Uh, are you not at all curious, especially about pitchers, whether they're locating well, whether they're getting their strikeouts, or um, are hitters managing the strike zone? Are you not looking for skills um, type of metrics, not just results metrics? Uh, does any of it interest you? Um, I guess it, 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 on a player-by-player, player, I mean, you know, if Mike Moustakis has a great spring, he's not jumping up my my draft boards. Something like I that's what I, I'm I don't I don't hitch my wagon to the to the guy that has just happened to have a hot three weeks at the end of March and is on, you know, in the highlights because he's hot. That that's I don't worry necessarily about that. I mean, maybe if Matt Kemp is running, I might that's something I might look for. Or Mike Trout if he's running a little bit more, might be something I'm look I, I, I make a note of. Because if they're not going to run in the spring and not run during the season, I mean, if you don't want the guy to get hurt, you're not going to have him run in the spring. So if Matt Kemp is stealing bases in in March, he probably is going to continue to steal bases in April, May, June, and July, et cetera. So that that might be something I look for uh, as far as that, that sort of statistical sort of thing. I mean, if someone's not hitting for power, you know what, I mean – Joey Votto, if he swings at everything, does that mean he's now changing his approach? I don't know if I'm ready to go that far yet, but as opposed to the actual numbers, yeah, the approaches and the uh, that sort of thing is what I'd uh, pretty much look for. One of the things we hear a lot, Todd, about players when they get to spring training is when they have poor performances or substandard performances or don't measure up to everybody's expectations, a lot of times they say, I'm only here to work on something. And so, for instance, you mentioned Joey Votto. Maybe he might come to camp with an idea of, I want to be a little more aggressive, and he tries it out, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to translate to the regular season, especially if it doesn't work for him. And similarly, sometimes you'll have instances where pitchers say they're trying to to add a third pitch or refine a third pitch, and they're kind of getting roughed up a little bit because they haven't got it quite yet, but they're but they're working on something, not actually trying to accomplish much because everybody knows the games don't count. So uh, is there any sense when you're looking at it that you're trying to identify where those kind of situations are happening? I think that's where Twitter might come, in, uh, come to be useful because I think that sort of thing now will be mentioned by the beat writer or the whoever's covering the team uh, via Twitter. I don't know that I can pick that out because I don't think I'll have access to all the games or I'm not going to be in, in spring training. 
I think it might be interesting to see if some of these guys that, you know, say they're going to bunt. I mean, if, if Chris Davis really is going to bunt more, you know, he better bunt more down here just to make sure that he actually can do it. It's one thing to say you're going to do it, and then it's another thing to actually do it. So, uh, you know, someone, uh, someone like Pablo Sandoval coming to a new park, is he going to, you know, when he, when he's swinging lefty, is he going to purposely try to go the other way? So that way, when he, when he hits Fenway Park in a couple weeks, will he be able to hit the monster hitting lefty? That sort of thing. So you're right. What, what, what is tried and what actually gets carried through to the season isn't necessarily going to be the case. But in today's game, there's so much churn. There's so much ability to just get rid of a player that's not doing what you want. Sometimes it goes against, you know, the analytics that we grew up on. But, you know, sometimes you just have to do it because you can. And, you know, maybe the guy does continue to do what we used to call manager speak or coach speak. And, and you know, we didn't want to pay attention to that scenario before. But maybe we have to now just because of the way the game's changing with reserve lists and, and daily moves and, and, and platoons. So you, you want to figure out the guy that's going to have the best side of a platoon or, or not going to platoon over a guy that is going to platoon as far as in your lineup means. So I think you have to pay a little more attention to narrative than in previous seasons. I don't want to say unfortunately, but I guess a little bit unfortunately, because I, I, you know, I want to use my analytics to win, not, happen to get lucky and, you know, guess right that this guy actually is going to bunt more or something. Well, speaking of Chris Davis possibly bunting more as an effort, of course, to beat the shift, or if David Ortiz lays down two or three successful bunts just poking him out somewhere in the general vicinity of third base and lumbering along for a base hit, that could be pretty interesting news because it seems like even if they don't carry it forward into the regular season with any great frequency, at least they've planted that seed of doubt in the minds of opposing managers that might get them to square up the position, the uh, the overshift a little bit, and maybe give them a chance to get back to roping uh, line drives into that what used to be covered by the uh, position by the uh, shift. Right, and and you just you just sort of hinted or, or triggered another thought as well. And that's with the shift. There are 30 teams out there that have now had an entire winter to study data. Some teams shifted a lot. Some teams didn't shift much. I think it'll be curious to see if after, you know, studying this data for the entire winter, if teams that didn't, uh, you, I think it's something you need to practice. I don't think you can just do it. Uh, so that might be something like that. But again, it's any, any information now that you can get that edge is is good and that that might just be something to uh to consider maybe it maybe for the pitchers maybe maybe if a team is shifting more and you might therefore bump their pitchers up just a little bit although the shift itself the data shows it's positive it's you know it's positive for some players negative for others there is a net positive so you don't want to go too goofy uh adjusting things because you're not exactly sure which end of the spectrum it'll fall on but it's just one more piece of data to, to at least follow. I think that's an interesting point, the idea that if more of them are shifting or if uh, the ones who are known for shifting shift more aggressively or more curiously by placing players, you know, like old-fashioned softball with guys floating around in the outfield for no reason, uh, there have been some studies that suggest that the standard positioning model is just not always the most efficient way to deploy your players. Certainly uh, football defensive coaches have figured this out with some very uh, 
wide-ranging adaptations of a standard 4-3-4 type of NFL defense, and and it has worked. And as it works, more people pick it up and so on. So that that is pretty interesting. Uh, it's Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, talking with Todd Zola, as we do every Friday. And uh, Todd, uh, in your column on uh, Friday of this week that came out, the National League Spring Training Review, you looked at some interesting situations uh, for various teams, and one of the ones that I think is uh, going to capture the attention of fantasy players is the pitching situation in San Francisco with the Giants. We've got questions with Lincecum, you've got Vogelsong and Pettit maybe going to the bullpen, maybe not, that all depends, and then what about Madison Bumgarner? Bumgarner is interesting. I just got back from the ESPN ranking summit. It's uh, all over Twitter, and that was one of our hot button topics this time yesterday was where does Bumgarner now fall among the starting pitchers and he's not getting the the World Series hero bump that I expected and I think the reason is there's just so many good pitchers that you know in a previous season five years ago he I think he would have gotten that bump but there's just so many other you're bumping him into Scherzer and Strasburg and Hamels and and so many other good pitchers King Felix and of course Kershaw you're not separating him from this group. He's still in that group. So I, th- I think that's a little bit interesting. But that whole staff in general, for, as far as the back end in the deeper leagues, you know, they say they're going to put Timmy Linscombe in the rotation. Where does that put, you know, Yusmeri Patet is supposed to be the petite. It's going to be a some kind of super reliever, they said. I'm not exactly sure what that means. Uh, you know, a super utility, you know, I know what that means. I know that's Josh Hamilton, Josh Harrison playing a little bit of everywhere, but I'm not sure what they meant by a super relief pitcher. Does he, does he pitch two or three innings at a time? I guess that's what it might mean is, is, is he's a bridge, but he, he comes in the sixth and he takes care of the sixth, seventh, and eighth, I guess. I don't, I'm not a hundred percent sure. But then you've got Vogelson, who he's got the injuries and who's been a starter by trade. Is, what's he going to do in the bullpen? Is he going to be a, is he really going to be a setup guy? Is he going to be the mop-up guy? Uh, and then you figure when you got Timmy Hudson and and Matt Kane and, and 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 these guys themselves, at some point, one of these guys is going to have to start. Which are you going to put in your reserve list in a deep NL only league? Are you going to put who's going to? Are you going to put Vogelson on reserve list? Is he going to be the one that picks up the spot starts? Is it going to be? Uh, Petit, just not a hundred percent sure. So in the deeper leagues, and it's 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 a park that you want to have the guy working. You know, if you want to put a reserve of the Giants on your uh, on your list because of the park, et cetera, for streaming, so it's a situation that's worth, you know, you don't care. If it's Colorado, we don't care. You're not going to use them anyway, but you're going to use a Giant. Uh, so I think the, the usage patterns will be interesting as far as starting pitching goes once they start lining them up towards the end, when they try to line it up to match opening day, who's going to take what role. I think that's interesting too, and I'm very curious to watch the San Francisco late spring training games when they start falling into the kind of rhythms that they're probably going to use when they open the season. Because this petite thing, I think, is super interesting. If he's just pitching what we would call a normal longman or swingman type of role, then I don't think he's as interesting as if they bring him in in the sixth and do pitch him three innings when he gets in there because it opens up an awful lot of opportunities for vulture wins. It opens up uh, certainly maybe more opportunities for strikeouts because he might increase his inning count over the year. Whereas if, as I said, if he's just doing a regular kind of swingman type of thing, it's maybe not as interesting as if he does the other. Well, you know, they've got a pretty good bullpen. So with Romo and Casilla and if Strickland can throw strikes – 
maybe they do something like to preserve Matt Cain early on without having him go too far in the games. Maybe they throw five. Maybe they throw Matt Cain for five, and they know Petit's going to come in there for the sixth and seventh, and if he's still going strong, the eighth. So he kind of you know that you're going to get those two guys together. Or maybe to preserve Tim Hudson, they you know Hudson starts, and they know they're going to bring Petit in. You know, Timmy, give us five strong. You know, Yuzmero come in for six and seven, and then we hand it to Romo and Casilla. So it couldn't be that where it's it's sort of plan handcuffing to the starter of that day. And then when, you know, when Bumgarner goes, you just play it by year. That's what, you know, they, they might have that in mind, which would be interesting too because, you know, he knows he's going to come in that day, so he might prepare a little bit differently. And if I know I'm going to get three or four innings a week out of Petit, you know, I wouldn't mind having him on my NL only roster active, let alone reserve, because when you start getting down to the end there, I want him more than I want, you know, uh, you know, the, the, the fourth starter on Colorado. I think he does less, you know, he helps my team more than that sort of thing. So that, I think that might be interesting too, to see what the definition of super reliever actually is. It would be interesting if they were doing that handcuff thing. It reminds me of the Colorado experiment you recall a couple of years ago where they were pairing their starting pitchers and having each guy kind of aim for four innings or 75 or 80 pitches or whatever it was. might not be a bad plan if you think to yourself, uh, you know, I'd rather have five innings every start out of Tim Hudson than hope he goes seven one week but only goes three the next or reduces injury risk or so forth. And if Petit happens to be the handcuff for two guys in the rotation, that's a fair number of innings. And because they're a good team, it's a f- again, it's a fair number of chances for Vulture wins in close games. Right, and if he knows it going in, he, he can prepare for it. And I, you know, I, I kind of like that idea. I don't know if that that's what they're going to do. But uh, I, I think that's kind of a neat way of approaching it. And it's sort of the way the game's going nowadays, too, with specialization. I wouldn't be surprised. I, I kind of, I mean, I'm going to check that out. And, uh, and my buddy, Lar Michaels, follows San Francisco. He's going to be down there. It's, uh, I'm going to give, I'm going to give Lar a task. I'm going to give him homework and see if he can find out if that's part of their plans. In San Diego, they made quite a lot of offseason changes. Uh, what are you curious about as far as uh, looking at the Padres in spring? Wow. Um, part of it, curious is that I'm, I'm a Robbie Erland fan at least I'm a fan of his stuff and I think they got a lot of guys they can throw against the wall there Josh Johnson uh Brandon Morrow so as a as a Robbie Erland guy you know maybe that doesn't mean I don't know that they don't trust him but you know he now has to fight through some uh some arms to to get it but on the other hand that's probably the best way to run a staff is to have a lot of you know let it let it flush itself out um, so that's the, you know, I, I have an interest in anybody on San Diego. I have more interest in Erlen just because of the health. And do I trust Moro and Josh Johnson and Despagne, you know, can't break a pane of glass. So I'm not all that interested in him. He's a, a great story. He was fun to watch last year. Those stories always emerge once injuries kick in, but the next year, when are they going to actually be my starting pitcher? The story, the story's not so fun anymore. Uh, so, um, Erlin's the guy, you know, Casey Kelly still lingers as well to a certain extent. Uh, I don't think on opening day, though. But that's definitely a, a situation to follow. Now even more so because they may actually score some runs. And, you know, you can't predict wins, but, you know, we say that, you know, but a team with a better offense has a better chance for wins, let's face it. It doesn't always work out that way. But I think this year you cannot – just totally dismiss a San Diego pitcher 
because the offense is so bad. Kind of the way Cole Hamels, for instance, is down on the ranks because they don't expect Philadelphia to score many runs this year. The Mets have an interesting question for fantasy players. Everybody knows Wilmer Flores can hit in a thin shortstop position. That's very attractive. But the question is, uh, is he going to be able to bring enough glove to the table to uh, be able to keep a job? And and uh, my question for you is, how how not bad does he have to be with the mitt to to stick in the lineup? See, part of the Mets, and I, I tweeted, I tweeted a, a a joke out the other day. It had to do with Matt Harvey. That you know, do we really, really need? to temper his innings in the event they make the playoffs. The implication being, I don't think they're going to make the playoffs. Um, but they do. And that's, you know, that's what's more, it's more important to think they think they do than I don't think they will. So I think it's not just we're taking a look at a kid to see if he can handle it. It's, it's that we've got a heck of a pitching staff and we might need more defense out there than we need hitting, especially if, if Ligaris and, and Granderson can get it together and some of the hitters actually, you know, David Wright, if uh, if the shoulder holds up well enough that he can get anywhere near where he was before, they may not need his stick, or maybe they do. But uh, I don't know how bad he has to be. I think I think it has, maybe has more to do with this. Does, does Darno develop? Can they get the offense elsewhere? Because if they do get the offense elsewhere with that pitching staff, I think they prefer to have a little bit better defense there and they you know, they still have to hotter in their back pocket to put back there to pick it if they have to. So I'm not so sure it's up to Flores as as much as it is in his defense as it is to some of the other guys how well they can hit around him. Can Kandyer uh can Kandyer get the job done within that park versus uh Rocky versus Colorado? Can Duda hit continue to hit and even hit a little bit against lefties or is he gonna be platooned? Offense around floors, they don't need them, and at that point, they may go back to the glove. At the start of your National League uh, spring training column, Todd, you make a jokey reference to Washington, nothing to see here move along in the manner of an uh, Irish uh, cop in, in Boston, but there are a couple of questions in Washington. Uh, Ryan Zimmerman's going to try to move over to first base, and I guess we're going to have to see how that goes, although it seems like they're kind of going to be a little bit stuck with him anyway and would really like to have him play over there in the reduced uh, defensive responsibilities. But the more interesting question, I think, is is Jason Wirth. He's probably uh, going to be not available for a good part of the first month of the season, and there's a couple of guys that are in the, in the, in the line to maybe take his spot and pick up some at-bats at least in April. Right now, mentioned a little bit before as far as reserves and churning and a new day and age of how we play the game. People wouldn't normally care about Nate McClough or or Michael Taylor, My, Michael A. Taylor. For those of us that have spreadsheets and need to, and, and need to use VLOOKUP against names, he's it's a he's the one. The, the better of the Taylors is the one that gets to the initials. That's not right. It should be the other way around. But that's neither here nor there. But anyway, um, you know, in in in, a, in maybe you had Michael Saunders and you need a replacement, and now a guy who's going to play for three or four weeks is far more attracted to you than he might be if he's just going to be reserved. So the the winner of Nate McClough and, and Michael Taylor, anybody else that might emerge there, could be important. It might be important if you play the daily game, if you play the DFS game, because these guys are going to have their salaries based upon their year-long expectation. And if you extrapolate that to a per-plate appearance, it's much, much better. Maybe, maybe you play the, the Chandler Park games. And again, the, the salaries are based upon... Their, their seasonal expectation, 
and it's very, very low. But in this three or four week period that, that Taylor might be playing for some upside, he's a nice place, a nice piece to put in your outfield and use your salary elsewhere. So some of these, you know, it, it, we're, we're tending more towards mixed leagues and neither of these guys are on the radar normally in a mixed league. But when you're playing for three or four weeks, suddenly you become viable over some of the, you know, platoon players, you know, Seth Smith or, or someone like that who's nice. But, you know, get a full-time guy over him, and that's what you might have in Washington. Great lineup, uh, scoring some runs. Not the worst park, even though people might think it plays neutral for runs. So you'll get some counting stats in that park. You're going to hit down on the bottom of the order, but it'll churn enough that you'll get enough at-bats to make it worthwhile as your last guy. So, yeah, I want to paying attention to situations like that that you might normally pay attention to. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Todd Zola. And Todd, uh, you also had an American League column that came out earlier in the week uh, looking at spring training questions in the junior circuit. And I want to start in Toronto. You mentioned that uh, whoever wins the Washington sweepstakes, Michael Taylor or Nate McLeod or whoever it turns out to be, might come in handy for somebody who has Michael Saunders as a keeper in their fantasy team. And that raises the question about Michael Saunders. Uh, this guy, if he didn't have bad luck, he'd have no luck at all. He's going to be out, they say, to the All-Star break. Could be more, could be less. But let's turn, instead of the fantasy side of it, let's turn to the Toronto side of it. What are they going to do for left field? They say they're going to go internal. Uh, Kevin Pillar and Andy Dirks. That's what they say. But there are, I can count three teams out there, and I'm not, you know, everybody can count. The, 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 everybody knows the three teams out there that have got an abundance of outfielders. You've got San Diego, you've got the Dodgers, and you've got the Red Sox. So if you eliminate the Red Sox, because I don't, you know, I don't think, I don't see Boston giving them Victorino in the division, because uh, I don't think that Toronto will be giving anything to Boston that'll make it worthwhile. That puts us out west, and that gives you Andre Ethier. It gives you Cameron Mabin, and it gives you Will Venable as three names that would look really good playing left field for Toronto right now. Whether they go that route, who knows. But I I think that's where I suspect they will go because they're in an all-in mode here. Unfortunately, they still need to find a closer, or maybe they need to find a closer. I don't know if they have the resources to do both, so maybe this means – in a weird sort of way, maybe Saunders' injury means Cecil's going to be the closer because they can't get both a left fielder and a closer. I'm not sure. But uh, people are saying this solidifies Pompey. For me, Pompey's only competition is Pompey himself, Dalton Pompey. I don't see Saunders being out makes it any more likely that Dalton Pompey sticks. Uh, you know, Andy Dirks is the name that if he was fully healthy would be of interest to me, but coming off so many injuries just just not sure that uh that, that Andy Dirks would be the guy that that I you know in-house guy that I would count on I think they have to go outside to bring the you know if they're really going to go for it this year and that apparently you know they, they should in that AL East they absolutely should Staying in the AL East, the Tampa Bay Rays had a competition it looked like shaping up at second base with the departure of Ben Zobris but you say it's Nick Franklin's job unless he loses it I don't know who else they're going to give it to. I mean, they got rid of Sean Rodriguez, and I think it's Nick Franklin's job to lose. And, you know, you talk another, you know, a guy, not, he didn't get hurt, but he just hasn't, you know, like Saunders, no, the only luck he has is bad luck. He just, he hasn't had a break right for him. There's always been somebody else in competition for his job. 
he's you know he is shifting over to second. He, he was a shortstop coming up, but I think he can handle obviously he, he, handle it very well defensively. But it's Tampa. It's not the greatest of parks. It's not the greatest of lineups. So even if Nick Franklin is the second baseman of the Tampa Bay Rays, that's of limited interest in a mixed league. But in an AL only league, you know he now does have some serious interest because he's going to be an end gamer. If he plays all the time, he's an eight or nine dollar player that you're going to get for a buck or two. So if it does appear that he's going to break camp with the position, with the job, you know, if you want to go a little stars and scrubs or or push your middle infield to the end of a draft or end of a, an auction, he's a guy to keep in mind. Staying in Tampa, the closer, Jake McGee, from last year is going to start the year on the shelf, recovering from an injury, and that opens up a pretty interesting cup competition, uh, including a guy, Brad Boxberger, a lot of people think should be the closer, whether McGee's there or not. Well, I, I, people, one of those people being myself, I don't know if that's the way they'll go. Uh, they've got a lot of, lot of guys they can throw. Kevin Jepson, they can throw it at it. They can throw Ernesto Frieri at it. And even though he's left the team now to, to, to take care of his dad, who's a little bit sick, well, <laughs> who's sick, uh, Grant Balfour, if he gets the, you know, this time last year he was the guy. So if he can figure out what he's doing wrong and throw strikes, I don't think you can completely dismiss him either because I think Tampa is in a bit of an exploratory mode. I don't think anybody can count themselves out of the AL East. Some people will say except Tampa. But we I know Madden's not there anymore, but still we've seen strange things from that from that ball club. I don't I'm not I'm not I'm not dismissing them just yet. Their pitching is too good to just categorically dismiss as a, as a contender in a division where anything can happen at this point. But um, I'm I'm playing as if Boxberger's going to be the guy, even when McGee gets back. In, in my mixed league, he's my third closer. Uh, if, I, if I'm right, then I have excess saves. If I'm wrong, worst-case scenario is I've got the – you know, you don't need three closers. You need something from your third. Well, I'll get that. I'll get that something from my third, with the upside of having a darn good second closer if things do break right, and you know, trade abilities or manage your roster accordingly. So I'm I'm choosing Boxberger. If I'm wrong, worst case scenario is I get a heck of a setup man that I can use anyway. Uh, I don't know that I would use Jepson or Frieri anyway. You know, the interesting thing about a guy like Boxberger as a setup man is more and more fantasy owners are realizing the value of having a guy like that on your reserve list that you can plop in and out of your rota- out, out of your lineup depending on how your rotation starters match up for that week or what or for that day even if if that's what's allowed and uh, having these middle relievers who get really good results are reacquiring value that was lost over the years as people kind of worked away from the Lima plan now that's kind of coming back but for this different reason because streaming pitchers is becoming more uh, available as an option in a lot of leagues and more popular Right, we talked a little bit about it last week because we, we we tied it into the the story I did for 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 Baseball HQ and and how standings from the beginning of the year changed to the end of the year and and the better you know this is somewhat intuitive but sometimes sometimes it's good when you prove or back support things that you think are going to happen uh, the better teams draft ratios. And they improve over the course of the season. The, the final ratio is better than their initial pitching staff. And one way to get there is to cleverly use your middle relievers 
when your poor, poorer starting pitchers have a start, not to mention pick up a better starting pitcher than you originally drafted. But I think some of that also has to do with using the middle reliever. I like to call it the money ball way of thinking about it. Not, you know, not, you know, money ball's not OBP. Money ball is the efficient use of an asset that is being underpriced, undervalued, underutilized. And to me, in the fantasy game, the middle reliever is now being underutilized. I think the major league is understanding, you know, Kansas City was a great example last year of how effective it can be. I think teams that do well in the playoffs have bullpens that do well. And I, th- I think now Kansas City's seen that and they planned it. Uh, it just happened, you know, some bull, you know, Red Sox bullpen a couple of years ago just happened to step up. I don't know that they were that good during the season necessarily, or they planned to have that as a strategy. Whereas you see a team like Detroit, man, how, you know, how many World Series championships would they have had the past five years if they had any semblance of a bullpen? Yeah, and speaking of bullpens, you mentioned that you're going to run with Brad Boxberger in a situation where he may be perceived as only temporarily, temporarily the solution. The same thing might be going on in Oakland. Sean Doolittle will start the year on the injured list, and uh, and there looks like they're going to hand the ball to Tyler Clippard, whom they went out and got and has closing experience. Could this be another situation where Tyler Clippard gets the ball to start the season and keeps it even when the guy he's replacing returns to the action? Yes, and it, it, it's actually a, there's two reasons why it's yes. One is just you know, what you were hinting at is just Tyler Clippard just takes the ball, does so well, and Oakland has got enough support with other relievers to continue to build the bridge. And, you know, they don't need Clippard necessarily as the eighth inning guy. They can have other guys do it. But the other reason being I, smoke equals fire sometimes. And I don't know that Doodle is, you know, you know going to be back and going to be fine. There's, there's some underlying things with the injury we're a little bit unsure about if he's actually going to be healthy. So I think there's there's so you got two different reasons why Clippard might, you know, again drafting him as your third closer might end up being your second closer. Uh, in Oakland, Oakland just uses uses the guy they think is best. Oftentimes, you know, they don't they haven't had a, a set closer I don't think since Raleigh Fingers. If I'm that, so they uh, they're not afraid to use who's doing the job. And if Clippard's doing the job, wouldn't surprise if he keeps doing the job. And rounding out our bullpen uh, discussion, the Yankees, everybody thinks it's Dellen Batanz's job, but when you look at the fact that they signed Andrew Miller, they like the way Batanz has pitched last year in that setup role, multi-inning role particularly. Is it a foregone conclusion that Batanz's is going to be the closer, or should we be looking at Andrew Miller? I think that it's... It, I don't think that Andrew Miller is going to beat out Batantis. I think part of the, what we're seeing there is the Yankees recognizing that you need extra good bullpen, especially when their starting pitching is so questionable. I don't think they brought Andrew Miller in to compete or you know to say you know the, the better guy wins. But Batantis is going to have to start walking guys again, to me anyway, for him to lose that closer job. His his you know his ratios are worthy metrics and peripherals to be in the Jansen and Kimbrell and Holland class if he can keep the walk weight where it is. So I think he's going to have to really explode, implode on the mound in the spring, just walking guys left and right, not to close. And now if he does that, they do have a pretty good guy in Andrew Miller to pick him up. But I, you know, the Yankees have the money. I think they recognize the fact that a strong bullpen is necessary, not just the ALEs, but overall. And 
Andrew Miller was available and he's not a bad backup at closer. I don't even I think people are assuming that Miller is going to continue to pitch as well as he pitched last year. I don't think that's a foregone conclusion either. Uh, I think there's a better chance that Batances is as good as he was last year than Miller. So I think that, you know, as a, as a guy who has to figure out how many saves everybody's going to get, you have to hedge it a little bit. But if I'm drafting, I'm, I'm drafting Batances as if he's going to get the full load of saves. Curious battle in Minnesota, uh, two position battles going on, one for center field, the other one for shortstop. And what's curious about it is that one player fits into both battles, Danny Santana. Yeah, well, they, they're they saying that they're, they're separate, but, you know, come on. I mean, if if Escobar, Eduardo Escobar, happens to outdo Danny Santana, I you know, and Santana hits better than Hicks, and I don't even think that Schaefer's part of it. I think they're just saying... I think they're scared of just saying that that it's Aaron Hicks' job. Of course, they'll put Santana back out in center field. In either way, they're still probably just keeping it warm for Byron Buxton anyway. So later on, and there's some pretty good signs that he will be up uh, in midseason past the uh, past the Super Two deadline. He looks ready, and and once he proves that he's healthy and and back on the swing of things, get a little bit of rust off. You know, we may see Buxton this year, uh, but. You know, from a, it's obviously important from an AL only perspective because those are the guys that that you get cheaper. You know, mixed league, not too concerned about it anyway. But from an AL only, yeah, if I if you guess right, and, and Santana's right now eligible at shortstop and outfield, so for our purposes, he's already a shortstop. He's the guy that I want to go for now because he's got I don't want to say twice the odds, but there's two positions he could work in at. So if you had to throw your dart at one guy at Santana, now he's not going to have a BABIP over 400 again. It's where that where he's going to come down to is he a 260 or 280 or 290 where that batting average is going to nestle once the re- regression occurs to the BABIP. But in an AL only league, there's still some value in that. A few steals along the way, hitting anything above 260 is helpful nowadays. So uh, he will be, I think, an important player to follow in an AL only situation. In Cleveland, you mentioned uh, something in spring training you're looking for, Todd, is the battle for a couple of spots that are open in the rotation as they go into spring training, and they have a lot of uh, potential candidates here. Gavin Floyd coming back from a pretty serious injury, Danny Salazar and Zach McAllister coming back from pretty subpar years, and TJ House, and it's House that seems to have your attention the most. Well, you know, he's the, I'm not going mean, to, throw, I hate to throw the Kluber word out there, but, you know, what turned us on to Kluber was, you know, really nice peripherals, really nice back metrics, and he didn't quite have the results that one would expect with those with those peripherals. House, is, to a lesser extent, is the same way. His, his metrics are very good. Uh, as you mentioned, I'm on the road. I don't, I don't have my, uh, my normal data in front of me to be able to spout out what his canine and, and, base, and walk rate. I apologize for that. But he's got good peripherals. Uh, not quite, not to the class of a Corey Kluber, but if he does break camp, it's not a bad park to pitch in. It's not the best, but it's not bad. In you know American League versus National League, and I prefer National League, but it's still it's still okay. The team's going to score some runs. He's the kind of guy that you you pick up as your streaming starting pitcher in a mixed league, or you know AL only for cheap in the end game, and could do some do do some good for you. You know, I, Salazar's got you know all upside. We saw how good he was a couple of years ago. 
Uh, Josh Tomlin's even in the mix, but he's not of all that much interest. Can Floyd stay healthy? So I think at some point these guys are going to get a, a chance. But if House breaks camp with the fourth or fifth spot, I'm you know I I will go the extra dollar or two to get him in the end game. I won't you know just settle for somebody. You know I will jump him in the in a draft because once you're into the 17th and 18th round, they're all the same anyway. To see that I get him as my starting pitcher in a uh, in an AL only draft because I I think he's got some sneaky potential. Last year in 100 innings for Cleveland, Todd, uh, just under two walks per nine, just over seven strikeouts per nine, so three and a half strikeouts per walk, which is a pretty nice starting place for for anybody's metrics, that's for sure. Right, and like I said, I didn't want to make people think he's going to be the next Corey Kluber. That doesn't compare as far as the K-9, but and it's unto itself, you know, as, as a back-end starter. And, and I think there's some growth with the strikeouts, um, and can he sustain that walk rate that we've talked about a couple of times one of my key things to look at in general is will a pitcher sustain a drop in walk rate? Returning to the bullpens in Boston, you say that it's really important to figure out who's next in line behind Koji Uehara because you don't like his chances of staying healthy. Man, you know, I don't. <laughs> I'm surprised he stayed as healthy as he did last year. I, th- I honestly thought the year they won the World Series, it's like when you have a rental car that you know you don't care how hard you drive it. You know, at the end of the day, you're going to turn it in and never see it again. I thought that's what they were doing with Koji Ohara to get that the, the, the World Series that they did. And then when he came back last year, and until the very end, when he did show some fatigue and he did have a little, you know, have some injury woes towards the very end. But then they go out and sign him to a two-year deal. I don't know. I just I, I don't see him making it through a season unscathed. He fooled me last year. Maybe he fools me again. I don't know. But, you know, it's a team that does bear, you know, some observation as far as, you know, who the person isn't obvious. Tazawa's had some opportunities, and I don't want to say he's blown them because I think that, you know, missing one save opportunity, you know, a lot of times you get that reputation of not being able to close, and you can. It was just, you know, unfortunate one-time sort of thing. But what scares me is they just seem to have this thing for Edwin Mejica, and I'll take Tazawa's skills every single day of the week over Edu Mejica. But because Mejica had some success in Cincinnati at St. Louis a couple years ago, they may view him as the guy. And I'm less interested if Mojica is the guy than I am if Tazawa. Yeah, I remember in years past, uh, I've always thought Tazawa was the obvious second choice, and he never has been in Boston, actually. And it's hard to understand sometimes, but that's how they do things. Uh, Everth Cabrera has signed with the Orioles. Uh, how does that affect a cascade of uh, playing position battles there? Well, it's you know, it's Jonathan Scope. Is he? He's the one that's. I know Cabrera is a shortstop by trade. But they're not going to kick J.J. Hardy out of the spot. So, you know, I think you have to sort of still keep in the back of your mind that Cabrera does have some issues going on legally. And even if he is cleared to play, is his head going to be fine? I don't think that you can just, you know, plunk him in there over scope right now. Uh, I think they might look to use Cabrera a bit in a utility role early on. Pinch running, pinch hitting. Uh, I don't know if you pinch hit necessarily, unless you're you know more of a pinch running sort of situation, because Baltimore does have a lot of fungible parts that they could pinch hit for and pinch run for, and still you know put Reimhold back out there and Steve Pierce and a bunch of guys like that that they can you know shuttle in and out. So I think he's going to get some chances to run, and if over the course of the summer that he seems to have his head on straight, everything's fine, and 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 scope 
does not develop any more than he has now, I think there's a chance that we see Everett Cabrera playing second base regularly in June, July, or August. I don't know that I'm going to bid or assume that he's the starting second baseman from the get-go. Um, he might be a guy that you now put at your corner, or sorry, your middle, uh, and anticipate, you know, you're paying for 150 plate appearances, and he may very well end up giving you 375 to 400, which is, you know, very, very useful in an AL only format. So that's not a bad, a bad way to go. And the one thing about the pool, and this is part of what I talk about during the first pitch form, second base, middle infield, it's not quality, but it's quantity. And if you're wrong about Everett Cabrera and you need to replace him, there will be somebody there. He's not very good, but he will not hurt you in the middle infield, especially in the American League, that you know you can backfill it in. And you not. it's a chance worth taking because the downside is very minimal. And finally, Todd, before we let you go, uh, the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, and of course we have to mention them at least once during Baseball HQ Radio, are going to suffer a hit to the depth chart. Josh Hamilton has uh, got himself back into some, some trouble with uh, personal issues off the field. What is going to go on with this? He's suspended, I think, for 25 games, I heard, and uh, that's going to cause a ripple effect in Anaheim. Well, he was hurt anyway, so... I think you'd already sort of made plans to bump up Matt Joyce a bit and and secure more at-bats for C.J. Crone. It's just now the question becomes, you know, is it early that you have to worry about this or, you know, is Matt Joyce going to be benefit the entire season? He's a guy that's real interesting right now because they're now talking about hitting Joyce second, which the ripple effect there means Mr. Trout has to hit third. And now... How does that influence the the RBI and the run dynamic? Is he he wants to run more? Is he going to run more if he's third, or did he mean he was going to run more if he's hitting second? You know, in Matt Joyce, I've already I've talked about a few times how you know how high I am on Cole Calhoun hitting leadoff in that lineup. Now you put Matt Joyce at least when he's facing a right hander, you know, in the two hole. You know, he's now a guy that I'm very interested in, you know, unless he's facing a southpaw. And it's, right now it's not exactly clear what they'll do if he's now going to be a full-timer or not. But the other guy I mentioned, too, is C.J. Cron, who I think might be the biggest beneficiary of being able to count on another 100 plate appearances over the course of the season. Maybe you did before the Hamilton news broke. So he's a guy that you put in as your late middle uh, corner infielder in deep leagues. And, you know, could bash himself into, uh, you know, nowadays 18 homers is pretty good, you know, from in an AL only situation for, for late for late power. You're not going to get those 20 homer guys late anymore. So Kron could be an interesting, you know, late pickup at corner. And, you know, Albert Albert's shown some health. I don't know that I'm going to go that road. I think I don't need to make that argument with Kron. I think it stands on its own that he could hit himself into some more playing time at DH and spelling Kron at first base even with a healthy Albert. All right, Todd, thanks very much for running us through spring training in uh, both leagues, and we'll catch up with you again in a week's time. Have fun at First Pitch Forums. Excellent. Hope to have some have some good stories to report. We'll talk to you next week. Todd Zola writes for BaseballHQ.com. MastersBall.com is the mothership. He writes for FantasyAlarm.com, ESPN.com. He's all over the place, and as I say every week, wherever Todd Zola is, you should be there too. When we come back, our regular Baseball HQ commentaries, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. <laughs> Tell me where we are in the standing. He can call me a horse manager. I'll 
But I don't want to be reminded, well, this club is standing. By somebody that can't do their job, that never has been able to do their job. Myself, the coaches, and the players can take only so much of this crap. That was a classic the last two games, I'm going to tell you right now. 23 years, that's the worst I ever saw. Now, when anyone attacks me personally, again, I don't give a shit. Because I got more time than all those c out there. But when they start talking about this ball club, don't back me up against the fucking wall. Because if it weren't for the good umpires in the league, those other guys out there, Brentford and Perpetio, would be in the minor league. Maybe. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time for our regular Friday commentaries. We have Bob Berger on deck with Master Notes and leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here with a report on three top prospects in the Blue Jays organization is BaseballHQ.com Minor Leagues Analyst Rob Gordon. The Toronto Blue Jays will be an interesting team to watch this spring as they will likely have three highly touted rookies competing for spots in their 25-man roster. Devin Travis came over from the Tigers in the Anthony Ghost trade and will compete with Mesura Sturis and others for the starting second base job. The 23-year-old Travis is recovering from a stomach injury but should be 100% by the start of spring. While Travis isn't really an elite prospect, he does have a nice bat and has a career slash line of 323 batting average with a 388 on base percentage and a pretty decent 487 slugging percentage, and he has a discerning eye at the plate. In the outfield, 22-year-old Dalton Pompey impressed at three different levels in 2014, hitting 317 with a very nice 392 on base percentage and 43 stolen bases. The trade of Ghost and the departure of Colby Rasmus via free agency leaves Kevin Pillar as the only viable alternative, and Pompey simply has too much potential to lose that battle. Finally, on the mound, the 21-year-old lefty Daniel Norris will have a chance to nail down the fifth starter spot, but will have to beat out both Marco Estrada and fellow prospect Aaron Sanchez. Norris is the top left-handed pitcher in the minors, and in 2014 struck out an amazing 163 in just 124.2 innings while going 12-2 with a 2.53 ERA. All three prospects are viable options in AL-only formats, so keep an eye on these position battles as the Toronto Blue Jays prepare to contend for the AL East in 2015. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. In the preseason and all season, Rob Gordon, Jeremy Deloney, Colby Garapi, and others have reports and updates on top prospects, organization moves, daily call-ups, and everything you need to keep tabs on rising stars. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your draft and in your league, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. Now it's time for Master Notes, a weekly comment on baseball and fantasy baseball. And with a look at what he learned from Virtual Fred, here's a new voice, Baseball HQ researcher and writer, Bob Berger. I met Virtual Fred last year before the start of my longtime NL-only home league. Actual Fred is one of our three remaining original owners. On the Saturday before the 2014 MLB season, beer, snacks, and laptops were being unpacked when I got a phone call. Fred was on the line, and he didn't sound good. Bob, I'm not going to make the draft. I've got the flu. I'm really sorry. As commissioner, I wanted to solve the problem. Our draft is an auction, with teams carrying over 10 to 14 players. I asked Fred if he had the spreadsheet that he used for the draft. Of course, he groaned. I've been working on it for six weeks. Maybe you can still participate, I said. Send me your spreadsheet with your prioritized list of players and your maximum bid for each one. 
I broke the news that Fred would not be joining us, but that virtual Fred would participate. With Fred's spreadsheet, I would act as Fred and draft my own team. If I was not interested in the nominated player, but he was on Fred's list, I would bid as virtual Fred. Fred had highlighted players that were targets versus acceptable versus if I have no other choice. If Fred and I were both interested in a player, I would write down my maximum bid before I looked at Fred's bid. If my bid was higher, I would bid for my team. Otherwise, I would bid for Fred. I adopted a robot-like approach as virtual Fred. If Fred's limit was above the current bid, I immediately raised the bid by the minimum increment. This behavior was unusual in our draft. Over the years, our drafts have never had a formal time limit for raising bids. Often, an owner will deliberate for a minute or two before raising. Virtual Fred raised without hesitation. This new dynamic pushed some owners out of their comfort zone, and they sometimes stopped bidding earlier than they might have if Virtual Fred had not been so quick to raise. When Virtual Fred nominated a player, he opened bidding close to his max bid. This was also uncommon in our drafts, where most players are nominated at a low price and reach their final price through many incremental bids. When Virtual Fred opened the bidding at a relatively high price, he often got the player without another bid being made. So what did I learn from Virtual Fred? Number one, stay disciplined to your plan. If you've done the prep, trust the prep. Fred had a successful draft even though he wasn't there. His team finished in the top half of our league. It is important to be flexible and respond to real-time dynamics of a draft but we sometimes overreact to unanticipated actions from other owners, and we may be too quick to abandon a well-thought-out approach. Because I wrote down my high bid prior to looking at virtual Fred's, I stayed much closer to my own spending plan than normal. If we make significant changes to our strategy during the draft, how will we ever know if that strategy works? Number two, changing drafting dynamics in a long-time league can create an advantage. Several owners seemed unnerved when Virtual Fred immediately raised bids. In leagues where you know the other owners, think about how you might throw them off balance by using a new strategy. Number three, real-time data is overrated and a waste of valuable time during a draft. In our league, most owners immediately look up the latest news when a player is nominated. After all, you never know when a player will be scheduled for Tommy John surgery, right? Over the years, I'd fallen into that trap too but I was too busy during this draft working on my own team as well as playing virtual Fred to spend time looking at any depth chart changes from the day before. A better use of my time was to focus on my strategy. After all, I worked on it for several weeks. Okay, maybe months. I've already applied lessons learned from virtual Fred. I participated in an NFBC Draft Champions League, which is a 50-round, no-free-agent pickup slow draft. Early in the draft, when other owners chose players earlier than I had anticipated or when there was a positional run, I was tempted to alter my plan, but remembering Virtual Fred, I resisted. I also applied the lesson about the dangers of looking at real-time data. I had a chance to get VMart at the end of the second round. The news about his knee surgery came out when I was on the clock, but I picked him anyway. A week later, reports said he will miss little if any time. I'm glad I didn't overreact. I've got several more drafts coming up in the next six weeks. I plan on having virtual Fred sitting on my shoulders. This is Bob Berger for BaseballHQ.com. 
Bob Berger is a BaseballHQ.com researcher and writer and a member of the Master Notes rotation here at Baseball HQ Radio. You can get Master Notes delivered to your email inbox every Friday in the weekly free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, February 27th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number five of the 2015 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our usual guest on this edition of the show, Todd Zola, our regular Talk with Todd guest. It's always fun to talk with Todd, and I always learn plenty. I also want to thank our other commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our League Watch News Analyst today was Harold Nichols, covering both the National League and the American League. Our Minor League Minute commentator was Rob Gordon. And our Master Notes commentator was BaseballHQ.com researcher and writer Bob Berger. I'm Patrick Davitt. I'll have a research piece up on the site soon, looking at whether bounce-back pitchers is a real thing or a myth. And, of course, I always hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can check out Baseball HQ on Facebook and our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt. And more importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday with another edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt. <laughs>